Father, thanks for giving us another night to be together to look at your word and to, um, yeah, learn what you have to say about the Christian life. Uh, just pray for your help in this and that we would uh, learn what you want us to, to learn today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we did just basic introduction of what Christian ethics is and um, we talked about the different types of ethical systems and how basically the Christian ethical system can't perfectly fit into any of the, the primary systems, uh, but it kind of incorporates a number of them. Um, so with all of that kind of behind us, I, today we're really just going to turn, kind of hard turn towards uh, the Ten Commandments, which is what we, we said last week we were going to use as our guide for uh, Christian ethics. And I want to make it clear that we're, <coughs> we're not uh, looking at the, the Ten Commandments in a morally binding way as Christians. Um, it is certainly the way that God intends for his people to live, and the, the best way that we can live in a fallen world is by uh, obedience and, um, and following what he calls us to. And those Ten Commandments give us an outline of how life works best. But Christ is the one who fulfilled all those for us, and so we we find our salvation in Jesus and faith in him alone, not by works of the law. Uh, but I think that the Ten Commandments are a helpful way to go about this, especially when you start talking about ethical decision-making, because they, they really do deal with how we live. And so we're going to walk through these um, over the next five weeks or four more after tonight, and we're going to get through all Ten Commandments in that time. Uh, today we're going to look at the first, well, let's see, uh, the first four... And then I think the ninth is what we're going to do. I'm trying to categorize them in, in uh, ways that kind of pair them uh, in a logical form. So we're not going to go through sequentially through the Ten Commandments in 1 through 10. We're going to kind of pick and choose a little bit as we categorize them. Um, but we're going to take a, by far the biggest chunk of commandments tonight. And then after today, we're going to look at just kind of one at a time um, and unpack those. But uh, here's what we're, we're going to look at today. We're, we're looking at the first four commandments, and then we'll look at the ninth, like I said. These commands primarily deal with two broad ethical issues. Um, you can kind of put them into two categories. One is our worship, and another is our words. So the first, second, and fourth commandment deal with our worship and how we relate to God and how we think of God and how we respond to him. And, and then the third and ninth commandment uh, relate primarily to our words, our speech, our language. So that's what we're doing. Uh, one through four and then nine. We'll look at all those tonight, um, but we'll put one, two, and four together first. Um, but before we even get into the specific commands, let's, let's look at how these start because I think it's helpful. In Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Ten Commandments are found. If you have a Bible and you want to look at it yourself, you're welcome to. I'll have as many of the verses up on the screen as we can. But uh, Exodus 20, 1 and 2, uh, God identifies himself before he gives the Ten Commandments. And he says this, The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God establishes that the Ten Commandments uh, are rooted in a personal relationship with God, that he is the Lord, your God. 
uh, and he's speaking, of course, to the, the nation of Israel through Moses at this point, but um, God establishes himself as a personal God. He's not this abstract thought out there. He's not uh, a detached God. He's, re- he's rooted in relationship and to his people. And so this uh, is the preface to the Ten Commandments. And because the Lord is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt or redeemed you out of the house of slavery, and we can say the same, not in a physical way. Uh, we weren't physically slaves to Egypt, but we were slaves to sin. That God then through Christ redeems us in, in, this, in this way. And the Exodus story of the Old Testament is just a prototype of what Jesus would ultimately do. Um, but then he enters into this, um, into the ten, ten Commandments after establishing that there's a personal relationship here. So the Christian life is based on relationship with God. It's not based on following rules fundamentally. But following the rules uh, is a part of how we express our relationship with God because he's a God who uh, calls us to uh, a particular way of life. So here's the first commandment at the bottom of the screen here. It's Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So the Ten Commandments begin with this phrase, you shall have no other gods before me. And this really does have to do then fundamentally with our worship. So the two categories we're looking at tonight, worship and our words. And uh, we're going to start with our worship, which begins with no other gods. How does this Uh, So what I want to do is I want to give kind of the original context and give you some background on the commandments, and then we're going to flesh out how that actually applies uh, to the Christian life as best we can without, obviously, we can't possibly touch on everything, but I'll do my best to to kind of take us through it. So um, the Hebrew text of of Exodus, so uh, the Old Testament was written predominantly in Hebrew, um, New Testament Greek. But the, the word uh, you, you shall have no other gods before me, uh, is a singular pronoun. So it's not plural. So in English, we don't really have a plural you, unless you're a southerner and you say y'all, which, whatever. But uh, we don't really actually have a word in English that's just you. And you can mean you, or you can mean you. Uh, but in other languages, like, like Greek and like Hebrew, um, pronouns can have plural or singular and this is singular. Uh, so it's indicating that God is addressing the people of Israel, not just collectively, but individually, that they are, that they are actually accountable to him personally. Uh, and so that's, that's good. And it's important for us to, to recognize that uh, the call of the Ten Commandments is not just on a, uh, a specific ethnic group of people, but it's actually on, a, on every individual person. Um, the phrase, then, before me, you shall have no other gods before me. Some translations, like I think the NIV translates it besides me or beside me. Um, there's, there's some, we'll, we'll kind of get into the weeds a little bit here, but the phrase before me represents the Hebrew expression alpanya. I don't think I pronounced any of that right, but that literally means on, to, towards, or against my face. So my face, and it's either on, my face or to my face or towards my face. Uh, And so it's translated as either before me in ESV or in most other English translations or besides me, which is a Christian standard Bible, NIV, NRSV, they they translate it that way. But either way, the sense of what the translators are trying to get to is similar. Um, they're, They're kind of trying to say the same thing. The intention of rendering it before me 
is to give a sense of in my presence. So there's no other gods in front of me, like in front of my face, um, which captures the idea of to my face in the Hebrew. And in any case, before me uh, does not mean you shouldn't have other gods who rank higher than me. It just because that would allow for us to have these little gods that are, as long as they're smaller, then that's okay. So that's not what God's saying. God's not saying you can have a bunch of gods as long as they're smaller gods. Um, It's not before as in priority. It's before as in in front of me. Um, And so we should uh, understand the verse to mean you shall have no other gods in my presence or before my face. And because God is everywhere, that means uh, there's no place where it's appropriate to have other gods. Um, he is he is everywhere. So this commandment's a reminder that everywhere we are, wherever we are, we're in the presence of God, and uh, He doesn't tolerate uh, smaller gods or false gods in our lives. So that's pretty clear, I think. I mean, all, all in all, it's not a real complicated command. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, it reminds us this first commandment that God is supreme. Uh, he's above all, right? He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's the creator and the ruler of the universe. And so he rightly demands that we honor him as such. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Uh, God does not uh, have any competitors, and he, and he doesn't want any of his people uh, to believe that there are competitors and to give our hearts over uh, to them. So this, this asks the question, why is this then the first commandment? I spelled commandment wrong on the piece of paper, sorry, on the screen. Um, God, sometimes I catch my, my mistakes in, in flight here, but that's okay. Uh, but why is that th- this the first commandment? Well, first of all, uh, I'm taking a lot of this from, from Wayne Grudem's book, um, and obviously, we t- I talked last week about how Wayne Grudem's book and John Frame's book are kind of the two uh, primary ethics books we're using for this. Um, and it's going to be fun. Later on, they actually disagree on something, so that's going to be cool. Uh, but a right relationship with God, this is why it's the first commandment, uh, is necessary for a right understanding of ethics and ethical living. So this commandment comes first because it's the foundation of the Christian life. Uh, if we if we have any other gods besides or before uh, the true God of Scripture, then uh, we don't have a Christian life to even talk about, first of all. Um, it comes first because uh, it reminds us that the rest of the commandments are not mere opinions invented by human imagination, but are commandments that issue from our Creator Himself. So, so God's exclusivity is, is crucial to the Christian life. If we try to uh, add other gods to him or worship gods besides him, if we place anything before him or above him in our hearts, we've lost the Christian life altogether. There is, there, there is only life in, in the God of the Bible. And so before we can listen to or understand or obey any of these other commands, we have to come to a point where we know God and we love him. And indeed, fear him, actually. Uh, we're, we're called to, not in a sense of like cowering in a corner, but in a sense of seeing him as our father who we uh, respect and, and honor and uh, fear, in some sense, his uh, fatherly discipline. And when we're, when we're in the right relationship with God, then we can 
actually begin to live out the Christian life. So the first reason why this is the core commandment or the, the key to all the other ones is that God is God and he's, uh, if, he, if he's not uh, worshipped exclusively, then we've missed the whole point. Number two um, on this issue is that when societies ignore the first commandment, uh, a lot of evil follows. So whenever a society forsakes the idea that we live in, a, in the presence of God and that we're accountable to him, uh, evil deeds multiply. They, it's just, it's human nature. It's, it is what happens. Um, there's, there's several verses here that we could look at. Romans 3, uh, 10 through 18, the Apostle Paul uh, lays out a whole bunch of ways in which humanity has uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and, and um, basically just goes on to say that we are, that no one does good, not even one. Um, we're all broken to the core. And, and that fundamentally is a result of not being in right relationship with God as he is. So there's Romans 3, there's Psalm 36, there's Psalm 94. Some, some passages you guys can read um, as, you, as you have time to do that. Um, thirdly, the concept of doing ethics before God uh, is lacking in secular ethics today. So we're, we're talking about why this is the first commandment, why we need to focus on our worship as, as in the exclusivity of God. It's, it's because it's, it's really lacking in most ethical discussions. So um, we, we see a lot of ethics classes that are out there in, in college. Sometimes it's business ethics or medical ethics or whatever other ethics that are out there. But these classes aren't generally taught through the, the lens of we're accountable to God. And so which is what we talked about last week primarily, that when you don't have an absolute standard to base your ethics on, uh, you don't have any standard. You're just going to shift and change with the, with the times and the culture and people's whims. And, and you just end up with relativism at the end of the day, which we, we spent a bunch of time on last week. Um, but we can't even know what ethical standards are if, if we don't have a God that defines those ethical standards. So that's not to say that courses in secular ethics aren't of, with value. I'm sure that there are helpful things. Um, but, but I think it's important that we, we as Christians, as we talk about the Christian life and ethics, uh, we're, we're looking at this through the lens of, of God's uh, exclusivity and his demand for loyalty. Uh, fourthly, we see in the New Testament that Jesus demands the same loyalty that the Father has in the first commandment. The first commandment teaches that only God himself has the right to demand our love, trust, and obedience. Uh, but we see that Jesus actually requires that as well. So this, this places Jesus in, um, in, in who God is, right? He's the second member of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus' Son. So Jesus also calls us to love him more than anything else, including our families or our, even our own lives. You can read about that in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Um, and this is also evidence that Jesus claims to be God because he demands the same loyalty that God himself uh, is worthy to receive. So as Christians, we worship Jesus. And we worship the whole triune God, of course, but Jesus is, um, is often the focal point of our worship and uh, as our Redeemer. 
And so you have kind of the, the John Calvin thing as creator, redeemer, uh, and the Holy Spirit is the applier of salvation. And they, they all function in uh, salvation. But, but as Christians, we can worship Jesus and be rightly worshiping God as well. So he claimed to be God. He was God. He is God. And so we can apply the first commandment by worshiping him. Okay, so that's basic background on the first commandment that we are to uh, live our lives in alignment with proper worship, which is that we have no other gods. So how do we apply this or how does this play out in our, in our actual day-to-day lives? This won't take super long, I don't think. Uh, we're going to just rattle through a few, uh, I think, obvious things, but let's, I hope they're obvious. Number one, uh, polytheistic religions are off the table for us as Christians. Polytheism is many gods. That's what those two words kind of smush together mean. Um, so we as Christians are monotheistic, meaning we have one God. Uh, polytheistic religions uh, don't fall into the Christian life. We can't be Christians and be polytheistic. So that's one very obvious violation of the first commandment. Uh, any polytheistic religion and Modern-day Hinduism would be a, an example of it. It's not the only one by, by any means. But um, if you ever go to a Hindu temple, I don't know why you would, but if you did, you'd see hundreds, maybe thousands of idols represented uh, in, in various, all kinds of various Hindu deities. So polytheism is, I think in our modern day, that Hinduism is probably the most famous of the polytheistic religions. But it's by no means new. Uh, polytheism is a very old problem. In fact, the, the Old Testament people that surrounded Israel, all of the nations around Israel were polytheistic. And that's why God's call to worship him exclusively was so radical. Uh, one, because he is radical in just the sense of his, his being, but also all the neighboring nations around them were polytheistic. Uh, you had the Philistines that had all kinds of false gods. You had uh, the Egyptians that had all kinds of false gods. Uh, So this is not a new problem. It was even a problem in the New Testament during Paul's day. Here's just one example. Acts 17, uh, excuse me, Paul's going through the city of Athens, so kind of the key city in Greece. And his spirit, it says, was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul uh, uses this actually as an opportunity to preach about the, the one true God uh, of the Bible. And he uses their own idolatry as a bridge to talk about, um, to talk about the true God. Because he found within the city of Athens a temple or a monument. It was probably more of a monument uh, that just said to an unknown God. And so, um, the, so Paul, Paul is like, hey, there's, a, there's an opportunity. Because um, even the, the Athenians or the Greeks... They, they had a pantheon of gods. You probably are familiar with it. If, uh, if you ever, you know, when I was a kid, the, the Disney movie Hercules came out and that kind of in, introduced us all to polytheism as kids. That was, that was cool. Um, but uh, you know, Pocahontas made us all naturalists and yeah, Hercules made us all polytheists, but not really. Um, but, you know, you have the, the, the pantheon of gods. You have Zeus and all these other, all these other gods that I can't even name. Um, but they, they acknowledged that there was probably a God that they didn't know about. And so they built this little temple to this God that they're like, well, we might miss one and we don't want to make that God or goddess angry. So we'll just build something for them. 
and then we'll have you know we'll have it out if they if they show up and and Paul said there I'll tell you about the unknown god he's he's the god who made everything and he made you uh and he came through Jesus and Jesus was raised from the dead and he just it's so Acts 17 is a wonderful chapter of the Bible I'd re- recommend you read it uh at some point as you think about these things but but there you go so polytheism is not a new problem Paul addressed it head on by basically saying listen you guys have missed the point here so uh if we're going to apply the first commandment, the first thing is we don't embrace polytheistic religions. Hopefully no one's scandalized by that thought. So <laughs> number two, uh, this really falls under all false religions, not just the polytheistic ones, but any religion that worships any deity other than the God of the Bible violates the first commandment. Uh, so we see an example of how this played out in, in the, the lives of some Jewish men in Babylon, right after the Babylonian exile, um, we read in Daniel that there were these three men who refused to violate the commandment of worshiping God exclusively. They wouldn't bow down to the golden image of the Babylonian deity, even when the king commanded them to do that. And they were thrown into a furnace and and God preserved their life and uh, used that, actually. But um, but any any religion that would worship a, a false god or another god outside of the Bible would be a violation of the first commandment. Thirdly, um, atheism uh, breaks the first commandment because even though atheism actually is a whole system of thought that claims there is no god, uh, that in itself is actually a violation of the first commandment because one, God says he does exist and they're, they're denying the fact that he says he exists. And also they're just putting their own ideas uh, above that of God's revelation. So they're, they're essentially, atheism is essentially, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be uh, rude about it, but it is self-worship more or less. It's, it's the worship of your own intellect and your own ideas. And you're elevating that above the revelation we have in, in Christ. And so in that way, Atheists do have other gods. It's just not uh, gods in the traditional sense. They're not worshiping um, in a religious sense, but they are establishing a a religious view. So atheism would be a breaking of the first commandment as well. Uh, Fourthly, uh, this is where things get a little trickier, but it's uh, anything that we would not call gods, but things that we value, love, serve, and trust more than God himself. And this is where all of us uh, start to get a little squirmy, right? Because we, we can all go, well, I'm not a polytheist, and I'm not an atheist, and I'm, and I'm not worshiping a, a God outside of the Bible. But we do all, every human heart does cling to at times and does move towards things that are not God, that we, we value, that we serve, that we trust in more than we do God himself. Um, and so if we begin to list all those things, man, we could, we'll just, we'd be here all day talking about all those things. So let me just give a few, I think, obvious examples, things that we probably have seen in our own lives at times and uh, certainly can see in the world around us. But one is money. Money is a massive, massive uh, stumbling block for many people because money promises security. 
and it promises comfort. And in, in our society, at least at this point, and I think in all societies, comfort and security are the things that we long for at the deepest level, which we can only find in Christ. But money makes the promise. And so money is not something we would call a God, and, and very few people would, would religiously, in a, in a religious way, uh, set money up as a, as a God. Um, but the reality is, is that our heart can get there pretty easily. Jesus even acknowledges it in Matthew uh, 6, uh, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. Um, the, the original uh, word that gets translated money is mammon, uh, which is kind of a more broad term for anything that, that provides comfort and security. But because of our English uh, language, we, we translate it as money because that makes, I mean, and it's true. And that's one of the key ways in which we do this. So Jesus acknowledges that there are sometimes divided loyalties and we can't do that. Um, we've got to be committed to, to God and then trust him to meet our needs through, through our money or through whatever other means he chooses. So that's one of the things we wouldn't call gods that we sometimes elevate as God, money. Second, uh, material things that we covet, things that other people have. Uh, Paul says that covetousness, which is wanting something that someone else possesses, um, which is one of the Ten Commandments, um, which I think it's the Tenth Commandment, so we'll get there uh, in a few weeks. But Paul says that covetousness is idolatry because it means that we seek joy, contentment, and security in things that we want to have or long to have rather than in seeking these things in and from God himself. So um, that's, that's the key problem with covetousness. It's, it's related to money because uh, it's material things. It's you know, it's related to the things we, we see in the world. Um, but Paul calls it idolatry. He says it in Colossians 3, 5, that we should put to death what's earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Um, covetousness is, is establishing um, something that we long for, um, and we're going to worship that in our hearts when we should be worshiping God. So material things, money. Uh, thirdly, uh, food or physical pleasure. Uh, Paul speaks in the New Testament of people whose God is their belly, uh, Philippians 3.9. And so that, that could mean, there's a couple different ideas of what he's referring to there. Uh, one on the surface level, I think it could just mean people who are putting eating or satisfying their physical appetites above all of their concerns. Uh, so kind of the gluttony issue. But another possible way of understanding what he means by their God is their belly is um, that he's using a concrete example to speak about people who use their physical comforts or put physical comforts and hedonistic pleasures above everything else in life. So he may not actually be talking about food specifically, uh, but he, he may be just generally using food as like an analogy for people who are just seeking their physical pleasure and they're they're counting on that and they're longing for that in either case it's a false god uh, that takes the place of the one true god so any anybody who would struggle with um yeah oh, f seeking physical pleasure whether that be through uh, alcohol or drugs or sex or 
or food or anything that we're elevating beyond uh, their proper place uh, is, is a breaking of the first commandment. And then uh, one more example would be the approval of other people. This is common for us. I think a lot of us struggle with this one. Um, it's common for Christians to seek the approval of others. Uh, sometimes we seek popularity. Sometimes we are seeking fame even. And, uh, and then we start treating those things as if they're more important than serving Christ. Paul uh, protests that if he did this, he would not be serving Jesus. In Galatians 1.10, he says, for, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's, he's basically writing that in the context of, hey, I'm going to say some things that you're not going to like and you're going to be mad about, uh, but I have to do it because if I didn't, uh, God is, uh, I'm not serving Christ then, I'm serving you. I'm elevating your opinion of me above God's opinion. So the list could go on and on and on. Um, but essentially, the, uh, the first commandment is put God first above all things, and anything that we place before him or above him in our hearts is a distortion of the first commandment. So not real complex there, I don't think. But are there any questions on that before we move on to our second commandment? Anything that you want to discuss? And we'll give you time kind of after each section, I think, to, to, as long as we have time. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to make a comment mm-hmm. in terms of money that it, it really actually supplies a false comfort mm-hmm. and security. Most of these are just false yeah. comfort, you know. That's true. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's good. Uh, well, let's, let's take uh, just <clears throat> a little bit of time through the second commandment, which is found in uh, verses 4 through 6 of Exodus 20. It's kind of a longer section. The first commandment is just one, one sentence. Uh, this one's a bit more. It says, You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So that's the second commandment. No carved images. Don't make for yourself any carved images of likeness of anything that's in heaven or on earth or under the sea. Uh, don't make them, don't serve them, don't bow down to them, because God is a jealous God. That's, that's the heart of this. So let's talk about the, co- the context of this, uh, and then we'll get into some of the practical stuff here. Uh, uh, the second commandment just clearly prohibits making carved images of God the Father. That's, on the surface, that's the, that's the primary thing that it's commanding. Uh, the Hebrew word translated as carved image is pestle, uh, which is a noun related to the verb passel, and the word, the word passel means to carve out or to hew, something that's usually wood or stone. It always refers to an object that is carved or chiseled out of wood or stone or metal 
and then used as an object of worship. So in other words, this is a prohibition of making an idol to bow down to and to worship. And, um, and so this is actually in some uh, Christian traditions, this is actually still considered part of the first commandment. Um, the Lutherans' uh, breakdown of the Ten Commandments is, has this as still the first. I think there's probably others as well. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't really matter. We're, gonna, we're not going to quibble over whose, whose list is right. We all have the same Bible and we're reading it. Um, but, um, but the first commandment, while that prohibits worshiping gods other than the one true God, this commandment is a little nuanced in that what it's prohibiting fundamentally, I think, is worshiping the one true God in a way that makes us think of him as having a physical form or something in his, like something in his creation. In other words, I think this is a, a prohibition against reducing God to something that we can understand him to be. And, and that's, that's the problem, right? With making a carved image of God is us and our tiny little human brains trying to comprehend the, the, the infinite. And so we're going to just reduce him down to this little statue of, of wood or stone or metal. And that's how we're going to worship him because that's something we can physically touch and, and see with our eyes. And, and, and God doesn't want anything to do with that. And there's, there's reason for that. Um, but the, the most famous episode in the Bible of where this went wrong, uh, at least in the, in the book of Exodus, is uh, the story of the golden calf. And uh, this actually happens very interestingly, like uh, at the same time that God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, the people are doing the very thing that God's telling them or will tell them not to do. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of ironic in that way. But they thought, you can read the story on your own, of course, in Exodus 32, but basically they believed that Moses was dead. They thought he's been gone a long time. We don't know when he's coming back. He's probably never coming back. So let's figure this out. So they go to the number two, who is uh, Aaron, uh, Moses' brother Aaron, and says, hey, make uh, make our gods for us, something that we can see, something that we can touch and so they they turn in all their gold all the jewelry all the things they had that they could be melted down and Aaron makes uh, a statue of a calf and says this is your god Israel here it is um, Moses gets there and is ticked like really ticked when he gets there uh, breaks the stone tablets that had the ten commandments on it threw them down got really mad about it um ultimately um, tells the people of Israel that they are, you know, breaking the commandments and makes them melt it all down and then makes them drink the, the, the water mixed with the, the gold and kind of a crazy thing. But, um, Mo, but Aaron, when he was confronted by Moses about this, just did something really, really very human. He was like, well, I, I, it wasn't my fault. Uh, they made me do it. And then they just gave me all their stuff and I put it in this pot and it melted. And then out came this calf. It just, <laughs> it just popped up out of nowhere. Uh, and it's like, yeah, no one's buying that. Um, but, but that's what happened there. So obviously the people didn't have the Ten Commandments at that very moment. But they should have known from you know, God's dealings with them as, they, as he delivered them out of Egypt um, that, that this isn't okay. But they were, they were confused and desperate and all the things. So... 
So making God into an image is a very common human impulse. So much so that Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 1, 19 to 22. So it's a little longer section, but look at, I've just underlined a few uh, key, key phrases here. But Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Them meaning uh, just every human being, particularly those outside of, of Christ. Because God has shown it to them. Then, then, he, then it says this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God and uh, they did not honor God uh, or give thanks to him, but they became uh, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul is addressing the issue of all unbelievers throughout all time and kind of just summarizing what's gone wrong here. And uh, he's saying that this is, so there's a couple of key interesting things here. One, he says that what, what they need to know about God is plain. It's clear. It's been shown. And then instantly says it's invisible. So uh, it's been shown, but he has invisible attributes. So God's invisible because God can't be seen. God can't be quantified in a, in a physical form. But what we can see of God is namely his eternal power, his divine nature. The, uh, the, the way that he created the world screams the fact that there's a God. Uh, the complexity of the world is, is an amazing thing. Uh, and, and really, it's, it's ludicrous that we think that it just popped up out of nowhere. Like, it's crazy. That's crazy. Um, but it's, it's, when we don't have God as a foundational reality, we have to explain existence somehow. So we make it up and go, well, just happened. Um, but, but God has shown himself to be real because we look at the world he made. We don't have to look at him directly and see him in a physical way to know that he exists. But because that's not good enough for us, claiming to be wise, we actually became fools and we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. We've exchanged, we've, we've made this poor trade. We could have the invisible, true, powerful God who created all the, all the world, but instead we exchanged that for lesser things, for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. So uh, Paul's addressing this issue um, but let, let's just keep going. One, one more thing, and then we'll get into some application of this. Uh, God prohibits the making of an idol to represent him because it reduces him to something far lesser than he really is. God is eternal, sovereign, holy, powerful. And nothing on earth or in the sea or anywhere else can capture who he is. So the prohibition of making an idol or, or making a carved image uh, is to protect us against misrepresenting God uh, because we just have to, we would just have to reduce him down to, to nothing, to nothing compared to what he really is. Um, let's talk about some application points here though, because I think uh, this might be one that again, you're going, I think I'm doing all right here. Um, all Christians should agree uh, that we, mustn't have carved images of God the Father in our churches or in our home. I, I, unless you are 
uh, polytheist or you're worshiping false gods, you probably don't have little idols or statues in your house of, of God. Um, and, and that's good. You shouldn't. Uh, that's, that's a clear violation of this commandment. And so you don't see God the Father in particular. We're going to distinguish in just a moment God the Father from the Son because I think there is a, there's something to distinguish here. But um, we don't have pictures of God in our, in our churches. And I, at least no church I've ever been in does it have a picture of God the Father. Um, and, and it shouldn't because that would be a violation of this, this commandment. Um, so what I, what I think this has to do with is, is our worship and particularly how we worship God and, and how we view him in our, in our day-to-day worship as well as in our Sunday morning or Sunday gathering worship. And so I think there is a broader principles that are drawn out of this than just don't have a statue of God. That's a good start. Let's not do that. But there's, there's much more uh, that we can say about it. Uh, one, I think this, this leads us to um, also need to refrain as much as we can. Right? We can't always control every thought that comes to our mind or mental picture. But I think we should refrain from mental images of God the Father. And I know uh, that that may be difficult, right? But I think that this is something that this commandment le- leads to. That when Jesus talks about some of the Ten Commandments, particularly murder and adultery uh, in uh, Matthew 5, he makes it more than just the, the bare external obedience. He, he brings it down to the issues of the heart. And I think you could, in a sense, do that for every one of the Ten Commandments, and including this one. That, it, that really is about the, the obedience of the heart and our, and our longing to, to honor God, even in our thought life. And so I think that part of the application here is not just refrain from having a physical statue in your house that represents God, but also try to refrain from having images in your head that, that represent God, in, as in God the Father and the Spirit. Um, we will talk about Jesus in just a moment. But um, so I, I think that, you know, every, everyone's probably clear in this room that we shouldn't make actual wooden statues uh, or metal statues or whatever to represent him. Um, but I think we should also refrain from making God the Father physical in our minds. And that's really hard, especially because that's, it's so common. Like the example I have on the screen is the old man in the sky, right? Like that's just what pops into your head when you think, God. And it's like, okay, some old guy with a beard sitting on a throne, right? And, and sometimes we can't, you, can't, you know, we, we, we're all inundated by things in the world. And so I don't think it's like, oh no, that thought came into my head. I got to slap it out. It's like, but, but try to refrain from dwelling on those concepts of God as, as God, as you worship him. Because he's not a God that can be quantified in physical form. He's, he's spirit. But let me, let me address one other thing on that, is that in the scriptures, we do have God being described as having physical features. Uh, Numbers 6.25 says he has a face, or it says his face is towards us. It doesn't say he has a face, it says his face is towards us. Or his eyes see us in Psalm 34. His arm is strong to save uh, in Exodus 7 and Psalm 89 and other places, many other places. Uh, we're told that he has ears in, in Nehemiah 1.6. But th- we talked about this last year in our theology class. Uh, we talked about anthropomorphisms and, and how 
we use human language to try to uh, understand aspects of God's character. And that's what this kind of language is doing. It's not literally describing God's physical features. It is language to help us understand something of his character. So God the Father does see us, and he does hear us, and he does care for us, and he is strong to save us, and all those things are true. And so the anthropomorphism, the human, the human analogies we're using, uh, like he sees with his eyes, or he has his face pointed towards me, or he has a hand to reach me, or he has ears to hear me, that's all meant to just describe the character of God and his, and his work towards his people. Uh, but they're not meant to paint a picture literally of God uh, in, in that way. There's, there's actually anthropomorphisms in the, in the Bible that uh, I think we, we'd all agree don't accurately represent God in a physical way, but there are analogies that were given, like the fact that God gathers his people like a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. God's not a chicken. You all know God's not a chicken. God's not a hen. He's not actually physically... Like that, that is not a way of us picturing God the Father. It is meant to help us understand something about his character. And so I think that that's, I hope that's clear. And that's, I'm trying to distinguish between um, affirming and using the language as we talk about God or think of God to say, God, would you turn your ear to me? Would you bring your arm down to save me and help me? That's all appropriate. That is all appropriate. What's not appropriate is dwelling on some mental image of God that we've conjured up in our own minds or, or have gathered from cultural uh, representations like the old man in the sky picture. But how else do we apply this commandment? Because we could take this kind of pretty in some different directions. But one of the things I want to emphasize is that I don't believe this commandment uh, absolutely prohibits pictures of, of Jesus. Um, when it comes to the question of Jesus, uh, distinguished from the Father, I think we're facing a different situation. So um, it can't possibly be wrong to think of Christ as existing on earth as a human being because he did exist on earth as a human being. He, he did. Like the New Testament gospels tell us that Jesus touched people and he heard people and he saw people and he had a face and he, he ate food and he was truly human. And so it's not a, a breaking of the commandment to represent Jesus as a man because that's not misrepresenting him. That's, that's who he was. God is, or Jesus Christ is uh, both God and man. He has two natures in one person. It's called the hypostatic union. We talked about this in uh, in the class last year as well, that we have a, a God who is actually both fully God and fully man. He's not God who, uh, you know, just looked like a person, like a hologram or something. He was truly fully human, human and also truly fully God. And so this, this commandment to not make a graven image or to not make uh, representations, I don't think can apply to the person of Jesus. Um, in fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 4.15, the, the rationale in Deuteronomy, which is like the repeating of the law, it's like the second, Deuteronomy literally means second law. Uh, it's not because it's a second, a second law altogether. It's just a re- repetition of the first law. Um, 
So when they repeat this issue in Deuteronomy 4, the rationale for making no images of God is since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. So the reason that that Moses is told not to make a graven image is because God didn't reveal himself to Moses in any physical form. He spoke, but he wasn't shown through a physical form. So that, but that can't apply to Jesus because people did see Jesus. They saw him face to face. They, they lived among him. They walked among him. And, and, they, and he existed in true human body. So, so when we read the gospels, when we read records of Jesus, it's not wrong for us to envision or picture a man with a human body because that's who he is. Even further, the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation in in Colossians 1.15. So Jesus is actually the way in which we can see God. We can't see the invisible God, the Father, but we can see Jesus. Now, he's not physically on earth today. We don't have any photographs of him. Um, We we don't have any records of what he looked like. We don't have any real descriptions. Uh, But but to image him as as a man, we can do that. Uh, and, and that's not wrong because he's the image of the invisible God. So let's ask a few hypothetical questions, ethical questions uh, tonight and just think about some of this. And the first question, really these are related, is what do we do about drawings or artwork of Christ? And what about children's storybooks that have pictures of Jesus? Are these, are these wrong? Well, I think you guys probably got from this already that, no, I don't think they're wrong. Um, I think we should be careful about uh, our use of these pictures or these paintings or these, you know, representations because we don't actually know what Jesus looks like. I'm pretty sure he wasn't blonde with blue eyes. I'm pretty sure about that. Um, But but who knows, right? I mean, who knows? but I think that the, the artist renderings of Christ, I don't think we can put them in the wrong category, but I think we should be um, careful about how much emphasis we put on them. That's where I would go. Now, children's storybooks, again, I think um, n- there's nothing inherently wrong here. I'm, I read my, my kids a, a storybook Bible um, called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's an amazing thing. Jesus is pictured there in a, in a very modest way and not in a, not particularly crazy. Um, but I, I think that, again, we should be careful of making this like absolute, yes, I know Jesus looked like this and this is Jesus. Like, well, no, it's not. That's not actually Jesus. That's an artist's uh, rendering of what they feel Jesus looks like. Um, so I think we need to be careful there, but, but we don't need to just throw them all out. Um, and at the same time, uh, we need to ask an, a further question, which is what about using images of Jesus in the church or in worship contexts? Uh, and this is, this is actually a much more controversial issue in, in the church uh, because Christians have, from, have a lot of different perspectives on this. Um, how to apply the second commandment to issues of church worship? Um, some would take this commandment as a prohibition against using any images at all uh, that would draw our hearts to worship in, in, in our services or in our gatherings. 
Presbyterians, a lot, not all, right, but many Presbyterians would fall into this category, a lot of Reformed churches. Now, we would be generically Reformed. We're not a Reformed denomination necessarily, but we are in that stream of Christianity. Um, other Christian traditions utilize images of Jesus all the time. Uh, in fact, make it a big part of it. Uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, some Anglicans. Anglicans have quite a bit of diversity on that. But um, there are many Christian denominations or versions of the church uh, that would say, yeah, you should actually absolutely use pictures of Jesus or have statues of Jesus. If you ever walk into a Roman Catholic church, you're going you're gonna to just see statues everywhere. Like that's, it's like their thing. It's kind of, I didn't grow up Catholic, so I think it's kind of weird. But, um, you know, it's just not my, my background. But there, there's just like a, a huge prominence of that. Where you have uh, Jesus hanging on the cross in physical form on, on the crucifix on the front, on the back of the, or the front of the church. And um, I don't, I, I'm not going to say that that's inherently wrong because it is of Christ, not of the Father. Uh, I don't personally think it's necessarily where we should go, um, but but that's that's my view. And I'm again, there's there's variety of opinions on this. So you know, it's, ethics is not a always a cut and dry thing. But I think bottom line, it boils down to um, your view of what is called the regulative principle. So we're going to get a little heady here for just a second. Um, the regulative principle is something that came out of the Reformation. Uh, it came out uh, during the Reformation because basically the, the churches that were reforming from the Catholic Church were spinning off of Roman Catholicism. Uh, they had to ask some questions about how we, did, how we do worship. How do we actually, uh, do we just keep doing the same old thing? Or do we revise what's happening in the churches? How do we bring it more in alignment with the word of God? And so what came out of that was the regulative principle, which there's basically two sides of this argument. People who are strongly regulative principle people will say that we should forbid anything in our worship that God does not expressly command us to do. So in other words, if God's word doesn't say do this in worship, like he says, sing to the Lord. So that's what we sing because the Bible says to sing. Uh, he says, you know, uh, read, read, uh, you know, the, the scriptures. Like these are things that are clearly uh, articulated in the Bible. So they would say those things we do because God told us to do them. So he's regulating our worship through the Bible. The other side of this would take a, a perspective that says, uh, we can do in worship whatever God does not expressly forbid. So you see the distinction here. There's, there's one side that says we can only do what God says we have to do. That's strong regulative principle. The, the non-regulative principle people would say we can do things that, are not, things that are not directly commanded of us as long as we're not doing things that are not forbidden. So all Christians everywhere agree we should worship God in the way he wants to be worshipped. But they're, they're emphasizing it in different, from different points of view. And, and so they would say, well, man, like, if God didn't say not to, then, then I guess it's okay. Um, I don't know. I'm somewhere in between these two views. I, I lean more, a little more regulative principle. 
Uh, if you've been to our church services, most of you have. We're pretty simple. We we don't we don't have a lot of things happening. You know, we read the scriptures, we sing, we have sermons, we do a benediction. Like God didn't command us to do a benediction in the Bible. Uh, God didn't structure the exact order of worship for His people, and so I, I, I'm not like hard line on um, on you have to do only what God commands you to do, because I think that gets a little bit sticky. But I'm also not loosey goosey to go. Well, let's just we can just play bingo for the glory of God or something because He didn't tell us we couldn't, right? Um, so you kind of get into like these things where regulative principle people can get really prickly about it because they'll say, well, if you only do what God uh, doesn't, if you do whatever he doesn't forbid, then the door's wide open because God didn't forbid a lot of things. Um, true, you know, that is true. And there's, there's a desire on the regulative principle side of it to say we just want to do what's right and honor the Lord and worship him as he wants to be worshiped and de- demands to be worshiped. Whereas the, the other side of it would say, we're, we're free in Christ to express worship in ways that, um, that he maybe didn't demand that we do, but he also, it's not dishonoring him, right, to do it. So I think you, you've got to walk in wisdom there. Uh, I think my, my personal view on all this is uh, that we should use caution in regards to uh, images. Uh, of I, I put God here, but I meant Christ. Um, obviously all images of God are, are wrong, but uh, we should use common sense here. The, the images of the Father are always inappropriate. Um, Jesus, it's not always wrong. I think we need to look at the heart of the issue and see what is somebody trying to represent Jesus in a way that's, that's a, from a, a good place, a desire to point more people to him. Uh, if that's the case, then I, I say let's go for it. But I don't think we need to have it as a as built into our worship. Um, I don't think we need to have images of Jesus um, laid out there for us. I think the Word of God suffice suffices to show us who Jesus is. Uh, and so I, I tend to be more of I, I tend to lean more towards we're, we're people of the book. Let's let the book speak for itself rather than coming up with human uh, images uh, or, or our interpretation of that. When we, in, when we inherited the, the Presbyterian church in White Lake, I was really surprised. This, was, this actually shocked me because I know I went to a Presbyterian seminary. Uh, I know they're not, they're regulative principle people. Presbyterians are really regulative principle people. And, um, uh, <laughs> and I got into that church building and there were pictures of Jesus everywhere, <laughs> like bad ones, like, ba- like bad, badly drawn, like really awful artwork. I was like, first order of business, we're, we're getting rid of all of it. Just get it out of here. Cleansing the temple here, you know, we're just going to go. Um, and so we, we shoved all those pictures in a closet somewhere. And I'm holding on to them because if some 90-year-old lady's like, my grandma painted that, I'll, I want to give it back to her, you know. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet, but just in case. I'm not like trying to, you know, be cruel about it and toss them in the dumpster, but they're not hanging up. Because <laughs> I'm like, we don't need this nonsense. This is crazy. Okay, so there's, there's that. That's second commandment stuff. Um, any questions on that or any thoughts? Or... Yeah, Nathan? Um, so, for an example of, like, pictures of the Father, mm-hmm. like, is that Michelangelo with the Sistine Chapel? Yeah, like yeah. The, like, God and Adam. Mm-hmm. The little finger-like yeah. thing, yeah. That's true. 
bad, bad Michelangelo. Yep. Bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Shame on him. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was trying to think about any modern day, or not modern, but any like historical paintings of the father. That's, that is one. You caught that. I didn't think of that. Nah, bad. <laughs> uh, but I, Take that down in your house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Take it down if you've got a copy of that. Um, but I understand what he's trying to convey in that. It is actually a, an interesting thing that basically the, the image of, you know, God's finger is stretched out and Adam's finger is like, you know, down like this. And all Adam has to do is just this. And he's got relationship with God, but he's refusing. Uh, so it's kind of, an, I mean, it's kind of cool. Like, yeah. I get it. I, I understand it, but not appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was thinking about when you think about Jesus's image and when it's appropriate, maybe when it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, I think in the terms of a lot of the times it's being used to teach. Yeah. um, No different than the apple tree and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. Versus is it being chose or used to stimulate you to praise that? Yes. Yeah. I think that that's kind of a real dividing line because... You're not hardcore about these pictures when you're just teaching. Yeah. I mean, even when you want to represent the Last Supper, mm-hmm. there's a line there. I don't think everybody's house needs to have that picture right. in their house because I think then they focus on, oh, that's what everybody looked like. Mm-hmm. I don't know if them yeah. people looked like that. Right. So yeah, is it's it good. being used to teach in a helpful way or is it being used that's what you're to praise? That's an excellent point, Sherry. Yeah, that's really, really good. And that's what historically the stained glass windows in the, in the churches were meant to do because so many people were illiterate uh, in the in Middle Ages that they would, have, they would render these pictures of the Bible uh, and, and Christ and in a way that somebody who couldn't read the Bible could look at the picture and kind of glean from what it's, what's happening. So yeah, I think, I think there's a long tradition of using pictures in a teaching role, um, but we have to be careful not to let that guide our worship totally right that's good hopefully yeah. children outgrow it yeah for sure you know, mm-hmm. those yep learn to read or whatever yeah when you read a good book and then you go see the movie you don't want to let down yeah oh yeah true and if we are the people of the book mm-hmm. then it is the heart that God is trying to get yeah and what he does and our minds may not be the same person to person, but in a certain sense is unlimited mm-hmm. and unrestrictive, whereas the other way is fairly restrictive. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a great analogy, too. I love that. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, we'll, we'll keep moving moving along here, but uh, we got a lot more to talk about, a lot more. So i gotta got to kind of hurry it up a bit here. Um, Still on worship, but we're skipping down to the fourth commandment. We're gonna we're gonna go back to the third in just a minute here, uh, or an hour or something. I don't know. We'll come back. To, we'll get that. Uh, but the this uh, fourth commandment, I think, comes back to the issue of worship, and it's the Sabbath commandment. So verses eight through eleven of Exodus twenty says, "Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God." On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days, for in six days the Lord made heaven, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, So a little bit of context here on the Sabbath. Uh, One, the Sabbath day was meant to be a gift from God. Uh, For the Israelites, particularly in the ancient Near Eastern time that this was written in, they were an agrarian people, so they had to work to get food, and they had to work very hard to get their food by the sweat of their face. Um, So this command actually announced a welcomed gift from God, Uh, a day out of the week where they could rest from their labor, where they could rest, their animals could rest, right? As we read that, it was like all-encompassing. Their servants, everyone could rest, and uh, then they would work the rest of the week. And so this day was also meant to be set aside as a time to draw near to God in worship, uh, God called the day blessed. And so that's kind of pointing us to the to the worship aspect. Um, the commandment was not intended to impose painful restrictions on human activity. And Jesus understood this when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So so by the time we're going to talk about this in just a second, but by the time Jesus came on the scene, this was not a gift from God. It was an imposing of deep, deep restrictions that, got to the point where there was a lot of confrontation. Actually, Jesus rubbed um, or butted heads against the Pharisees the most probably on the Sabbath issue throughout the Gospels. And in Mark 2, when he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, was uh, on the tail end of the Pharisees yelling at him because his disciples were plucking grains out of a field to eat. uh, And that plucking was considered harvesting. And so instead of just filling their you know, need to eat, they got yelled at for breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus's point is, if you got this all backwards, like this is not, the Sabbath day wasn't made for us to feed it. It was made to give us rest. And so you're missing the whole point. And just, so on that, uh, later on, Jewish tradition added a lot of oppressive rules to the Sabbath. And we're doing just a quick flyover of Sabbath theology here. But uh, Jewish tradition that developed after the last Old Testament books were written, added numerous detailed legalistic rules about what was considered forbidden work on the Sabbath day and what kinds of activities were permitted. Uh, these are found in the Mishnah. You can actually Google Mishnah Sabbath and, and it'll, a bunch of Jewish websites will give you commentary on how today we should understand this. Uh, but the Mishnah describes 39 kinds of work that are prohibited on the Sabbath. And so... Um, this this is actually, I know a lot of us, uh, you know, Protestant Christians are like, those Jewish people made it so oppressive and blah, blah, blah. But there was a good, there was a good heart in this. Uh, and I want to emphasize that because this happened really, I mean, we're, we're studying Ezra and Nehemiah right now as a church. Uh, we just started it up last Sunday. Um, when the people came back to the land after the Babylonian exile, they didn't want to have to go back into judgment. And one of the key things that they were being judged for that led them into exile was, yes, all the false gods and the worship of Baal and all those things contributed. But one of the key things that God said to his people was, you don't obey my Sabbath commands. And so that, it was the heart of the people initially to go, we want to make sure we're guarding, putting some fence around our lives so that we don't go back into judgment. And so the Sabbath, the Mishnah, and all these like later Jewish writings that aren't in the Bible, uh, these were ways of helping the people of Israel um, not break the Sabbath command and therefore not be judged. 
So I, I don't want to be completely cruel about it and just like throw them under the bus and say, how, how dumb were they for doing this? There was a reason. But the problem is, is that legalism, Larry Osborne describes it this way, legalism is building fences around the fences. So God gives us the rules, that's the fence. And when we add fences around those fences, then we're, then we're legalists. And we just keep building. And so they just built like 39 fences around the fence uh, and, and made all these rules. And so as we read the Gospels, Jesus broke the rules of the Mishnah a bunch of times, actually. And this was one of the key confrontations. Uh, he, he broke um, notably and intentionally did break the rules within the Mishnah. Not the scriptures, but these later editions. There's two examples I'll, I'll point to you, uh, point out to you. John 5, they're both from God, John's gospel. John 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Um, and he, he was laying on a mat. He couldn't walk. He was begging. Jesus heals him. And then tells him, pick up your bed and go home. Now that he can walk. And the, and the, the Pharisees got mad at him and got mad at the man who was carrying the bed because carrying on the Sabbath was against the Mishnah. The Mishnah said, carrying is a rule you can't do on the Sabbath. You can't do it. You can't carry things. Okay. So because, but Jesus commanded this man on the Sabbath day to carry his mat. He knew he was breaking the, the rules. But that, that got him in trouble. And then again, just a few chapters later in John 9, Jesus heals a blind, man's blindness a man who had been born blind. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. It's an amazing story. John 9 is so, such a beautiful thing. Um, but he heals this man, but he does it in a way that he didn't heal anybody else. He makes mud and then places that mud in the man's eyes. And then he can see. He tells him to go wash his face off and then he comes back seeing. But how does he make the mud? Well, he spits in the dirt and makes mud out of his saliva and the dirt, which... It's really gross to think about, but um, Jesus wasn't, you know, carrying any diseases, so that's good. Um, but he, he makes, so, so why is this a problem? And this creates this whole huge confrontation. Well, it's because kneading, as in kneading like dough, was against the Mishnah. And so they actually were saying, Jesus, because you made mud, you were kneading, you were doing that activity, that's against the law. And they accused him of breaking the Sabbath command. Did Jesus have to heal that man on the Sabbath day by making mud and then putting it in the man's eyes? Of course not. He healed so many people in ways that didn't involve making mud. He did it deliberately. He did it to basically go, you know what? You guys don't know what you're doing here. Like that, he did, it, this, was a, this was a rebellious act on Jesus' part because they had added so many things that were not God's intention. And so he deliberately, in those two examples, he deliberately breaks uh, the Mishnah, but not the Old Testament commands. That's key. Jesus never actually violated the fourth commandment in its original intention. I know as we read the gospel stories and how, how often he gets confronted about breaking the Sabbath, it can come across as if he was a Sabbath breaker because the, the leaders are accusing him of that left and right. But, but he's not actually breaking the intention of the Sabbath. He's breaking the fences that are around the fences. And, and so this, 
His Jewish adversaries were assuming the validity of these rules. They were just kind of, again, this was hundreds of years after the Mishnah had been written. It was just sort of ingrained in the, in the time of Jesus that these were, I mean, they were almost conflated to the same authority as scripture. So they just took these man-made rules that were meant to protect the people from sin, and then they just sort of adapted or adopted those as, as God's word. And what Jesus does is he's, he's breaking all of those man-made rules. So when he heals on the Sabbath, when his disciples pluck heads of grain, um, they're accusing him of violating the Sabbath, but they were actually obeying the true sense of the command. Uh, and, and this kind of comes out in the, in the post-Reformation period as the Re- Reformation Protestants were thinking about this. Uh, they, they identified that the, kind of the heart of the Sabbath was works of necessity and mercy. That, that whatever you had to do and whatever you could do to help somebody else was always appropriate in the, in the original intention of, of the, the law. And that's what Jesus actually goes on to say. Is he says, is it, is it unlawful to heal on the Sabbath? Says, I didn't realize that the Mishnah had healing people on the, uh, as part of the, the rules that I'm breaking. Because he was, he was just healing. He was doing good. He was doing well towards others and treating them with, with mercy. So that's the background of the Sabbath. Jesus never broke it. He, he broke the, the fences that were around the fence. Uh, but he never bro- violated the, ten- the the fourth commandment. But but let's let's talk about how this applies. How do we apply the fourth commandment to our lives? And this is a contentious issue among Christians. <laughs> I'm excited for this row right here on this. Uh, <laughs> I've had some off offline store talks with them, and but uh, but anyways, we don't have to get into it if you guys. No. <laughs> um, so, so here's where we're at. There's a long and highly respected tradition within the Christian church that sees Sunday uh, as the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament Sabbath day, which would have been Saturday uh, by, our, by our weeks now, um, and therefore would be subject to many of the same requirements as the Sabbath day. This was a position that was held by the English Purit- Puritans, and it's really prominent in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which the Puritans uh, wrote. Now, if anyone knows me uh, well, you know I am a huge fanboy of the English Puritans. Okay, I love me some Puritans. I love them, uh, and I and I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think it's one of the great theological documents uh, of uh, human history outside the Bible. It's an amazing document. But you can't be right about everything, unfortunately. And the Puritans, I think, are are wrong. But we'll get there. Um, Here's Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 21, uh, section 7. says, By a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he, God, hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. So there they're explaining that the fourth commandment in their view, the Puritans' view, was it's still binding on all Christians for all time. 
uh, as a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment. So how is this to be observed according to the confession of faith? Uh, the next paragraph, uh, paragraph eight, says people are to observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreation and be taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties and necessities of mercy. Uh, uh, duties of necessity and mercy, yeah. So basically you hear what they're saying. Here's how we should observe the Sabbath. It's a day of rest where we rest all day from our work, but also our words about work and our thoughts about work and our, and our recreations. Super fun, those Puritans. They just wanted to have such a good time, right? Couldn't work and you can't have fun on the Sabbath day. But what do you do? You take up the whole time, the whole time in public or private exercises of worship. Uh, and then whatever's necessary and merciful. So you have to feed your children on the Sabbath. But, but aside from that, you shouldn't be doing anything, right? That's, uh, you, now, again, I love the Puritans, okay? And I know their heart is, is to say God deserves a day where we just give all to him. There, there is a good heart behind this. There really, really is. Um, but this position is um, what is called um, the Sabbatarian view. Uh, so basically, in summary, it would argue that keeping the Old Testament Sabbath is what we're called to do. But as Christians, we just do it on Sunday instead of Saturday. So the, the requirement is still binding on us uh, morally. There's a few arguments in favor of this position. I'll run through them. This is what proponents of this view would, would say. Um, one, God established a pattern of Sabbath keeping at creation. Oh, true. For sure. For sure. Uh, that's the whole part of the, the fourth commandment that because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, so you get a day of rest. God creates this pattern. Uh, now, we as Christians move it to the first day of the week because Christ was raised on the first day of the week. Uh, and so we move it to Sunday because of that. Um, but and traditionally, historically, that, but their view is that God established this pattern, so we should continue it. Uh, secondly, the fourth commandment, they say, is part of the Ten Commandments, and all the Ten Commandments represent moral requirements from God that apply to all human life on earth for all periods of history. Okay, well, we can talk about that in just a minute, but that's one of their arguments. They would say it's part of the Ten Commandments, and we, we always have to follow the Ten Commandments. Okay, third argument is that there is nothing in the New Testament that convincingly indicates the ending of the Old Testament Sabbath command. Therefore, it's still morally binding on all people. So the argument would be the Old Testament doesn't tell us we can't do it or shouldn't do it. So we, we just should keep doing it. So they would say, well, the, the New Testament clearly tells us that the, the dietary laws are obsolete. So we don't have to follow the dietary laws. The, old, the New Testament clearly articulates many things from the Jewish uh, calendar and said we don't need to do that. But they would say, the Puritans and, and proponents of the, of the Sabbatarian view would say, there's nothing in the New Testament that convincingly tells us to end this. Well, I disagree. But uh, personally, this is just Pastor Tom talking here. Okay, I don't, I don't believe that the Sabbath command is required for Christians today in a morally binding way. And I, I'm Nuance here, okay, everybody? We can have two thoughts in our head at one time. I'll get to the other side of my argument, but first let me say why. 
I don't think the Sabbath is a moral requirement for Christians today. Here's why. One, the Mosaic Covenant, including the Ten Commandments, have been fulfilled by Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what we talked about last week. We spent a bunch of time last week talking about how, how the moral law, which is defined uh, by the Ten Commandments, have been fulfilled for us through the work of Christ, that he lived uh, for these commands for us. And so we're not bound by them in a, in a moral requirement sort of way. We have freedom in Christ. But it's not the only reason. I think, secondly, um, this, is, this is crucial. Unlike the other nine commandments, this one is never reaffirmed for Christians in the New Testament. The Sabbath command actually looked forward to the coming of Christ. It was a shadow of the substance that Christ would be. And, and it was fulfilled by his life and ministry because Jesus fulfills the Sabbath command. Now he broke the Sabbath under the human regulations of it, but he obeyed the, the heart and spirit of the Sabbath under God. Um, but his whole ministry was one to bring rest. He promised physical rest uh, or spiritual rest to us as the Sabbath promised physical rest. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The whole ministry of Jesus Christ is to be a fulfillment of, uh, of the Sabbath, which was a physical uh, picture of a spiritual reality. Uh, and so I don't think that we are bound morally um, to, to have a Sabbath day. Um, thirdly, uh, I think they would argue that there is no command that says we shouldn't do it, and I would say I think that's wrong. Actually, I think the New Testament does tell us explicitly that Christians don't have to observe Sabbath days. Romans 14, 15, and 16, Galatians 4, 10, and 11, but I've quoted here on the screen Colossians 2, 16, because I think it's the most clear, and it actually uses the word specifically. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And so I think Paul is writing here to the Colossians as he does to the Romans and the Galatians to say, listen, we're not under the, this, this calendar anymore that, we, that the Jewish uh, people of, of the Old Testament had to live under and maintain. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you in regards to this. In other words, I think that we have uh, freedom to, to make decisions that are appropriate within this. Uh, with, with, without putting some moral binding on ourselves. So here's the other side of my, my two-part thought here. Um, even though the Sabbath command is not binding on Christians, in my view, okay, it's my view, uh, I still think we gain wisdom from the fourth commandment. I don't think we just throw it away. I really don't. I think that there's something we learn from it. Uh, John Calvin talked about this. He said, it, he said this, that although the Sabbath has been abrogated or it's, it's done, it's over with, there is still occasion for us, one, to assemble on stated days for the hearing of the word, the breaking of the mystical bread, which he's re referring to communion there, and for public prayers. So in other words, he says that here's, here's one application of a Sabbath that is done, it's over with, it's not morally binding on us, but it's, it's an opportunity for us to gather and worship. And two, to give surcease or rest from 
labor to servants and workmen. It's, he's, so he's basically saying there's, there's two reasons why we should um, still consider utilizing the, the Sabbath model because one, it gives us a, a built-in rhythm in the week to, to intentionally worship Jesus. And two, um, it gives people an opportunity in the week to stop working and rest. And so there's, there's wisdom in that. So, so how should we apply this um, to our lives as Christians? If, if I'm right and the Puritans are wrong, and I, I can barely say the words, but, uh, but, but it's, it's broken my heart to have to say that they were wrong about something. But, um, but, but how do we understand this? Uh, how would I help you with this? If, and you can totally disagree with me on this one, by the way, because you're in good, good company if you do. Um, but, but I think... Um, I think it's wise and and actually vital spiritually that we observe regular times of prayer, worship, learning, and fellowship with other believers. In in other words, I think we should be active in the local church. Um, So I know I'm a pastor and so I'm biased about that. But but I I do really believe that it is a vital spiritual discipline to gather and worship with the community of faith. Like, I I just don't, I, I don't, see how one can really realistically grow if we're not putting ourselves in a posture of humility and fellowship and, and learning and growth and prayer and all those things. We, we need that. And the, the Christian Sabbath, if you want to call it that, the Sunday morning worship service is the rhythm in which we can, we can do this. We start our week by reorienting our lives back to the reminder of the gospel and, and back into encouragement and fellowship with other Christians. I think there's massive value in that. And, and I'm just going to get a little curmudgeon here on this next slide, so for, forgive me. But personally, I, I don't think there are very many reasons why we should not be in church on Sunday. Okay? I just think there's so many. There's 168 hours in a week, okay? And church is like one of them. I, I, think, we can, I think we can prioritize this. God's not burdening us by, by saying, hey, go to church once, once a week. Uh, and, and obviously there's, as opportunity arises to do more than once a week, we should, you know, and as, uh, as we have time to do so, we should. Um, but we should prioritize that Sunday morning service above, or not just morning, sorry for those night people. Uh, but the Sunday gathering uh, or the Saturday, Saturday gathering in some churches or whatever, whatever it is that the church gathers in worship, again, I don't think the day uh, or the time is the crucial thing. I think that the church gathered in worship is the crucial thing. And wherever that is, um, we should prioritize that and then also prioritize the other opportunities to learn and grow. So that's one thing. Um, I, don't, I don't know a lot of reasons why we shouldn't be in church on Sunday. I, obviously, illnesses, being a shut-in, um, traveling. There are circumstances, of course, um, but just not wanting to go is a bad one. And that's unfortunately where most people land is, I just don't want to get up. Um, then we have a night service in White Lake you can go to if you don't want to get up in the morning. <laughs> so no excuses anymore at Springbrook Church. Um, but there you go. Second thing I would say about this is that it's, I think it's wise to have regular days of rest from ordinary work. So aside from the spiritual uh, growth side of the Sabbath, um, I think that the wisdom that God has built into his world of working and resting is uh, very wise. Like we are human beings who are physical creatures 
And we can't just go endlessly. We are, we are limited. And, and God has built in a rhythm of, of rest for us for that purpose. So I think taking a regular day of rest or two, if, you're, if your work allows for that, to take, a, take some time to rest from your ordinary work, use that time well um, to, to physically rest if you can and uh, to be able to recuperate. And the other practical side of the, the Sabbath rest is that it reminds us that we actually aren't in control of the universe. And if we stop for a day, it still keeps spinning. That's amazing. Like it just keeps going without us. And that's one of the things that God does to remind us is we don't have to work constantly uh, it, because God can still keep this thing going without our help. That's cool. Um, and if we are able to take longer vacations to rest and recuperate, we, we are, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's a good thing. Um, in fact, the Old Testament people were supposed to take a, a, a weekly day of rest and then also every seventh year was just like a year off. You just got to hang out and have a year of Jubilee. And it's like, what, a, what an awesome opportunity. Too bad we don't live in that. And they also never actually did it because they couldn't let go of their, their God complex. So I don't know that it would actually work even if we were given the chance. But, um, but God built that into the rhythms and then they just never did it, which is kind of crazy. But um, so not only was it the year of Jubilee, of re- a year of rest where you don't, you know, you grow enough crops to sustain you for a year so you're not having to kill your, kill your farms. And then also uh, all your debt was forgiven in the year of Jubilee. And it's like, whoo-hoo, would we, would we love that? That would be amazing. But alas, it doesn't work that way. Okay, last thing on this real quickly is um, the Sabbath command is a shadow, like I said, and, but Jesus is the substance. He's the fulfillment of it. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with us prioritizing the Sabbath day or to, to say, God, I'm going to give Sunday to you and focus on intentional worship. Like the, the Puritans have a good heart in that. Um, but if we, if we make it very legalistic and, and overly like, let's build the fence around the fence, uh, we're missing the point. The point is that Christ is actually the fulfillment of our rest and we find our rest in him ultimately. So the Sabbath is just a physical opportunity to do that. Okay, thoughts on that, if anybody has them. And if not, we, we'll keep rolling. We got like 25 minutes left until I got to have a hard stop here. So we won't, we won't belabor too much of this. But. Okay, all right, here we go. Let's talk about, we've, we've done our worship. Now let's talk about our words. So now we're going to go back up to the third command. And we're going to then look at the ninth command, because I think both of these, though they don't come in sequential order, uh, they both relate to the issue of our words. And so I think that this is where um, the third commandment begins to take us, which is verse 7. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So today, I think when you hear the word name, most of us think of a label that identifies a person to distinguish him from someone else, right? So I'm Tom, I'm Tom Desmond, and so that, there's lots of Toms, and so I got, you just got to keep kind of having these names to distinguish you from, from others. Um, but, but what the Bible tends to mean when it talks about name is not just a label to identify one person from another, it's really a way of describing the character of the person. Uh, this is a really interesting thing in that, that 
deserves a, a much more, more thorough study. But um, the name of a person in the Old Testament particularly, and, and you see it some in the New Testament as well, um, it more has to do with the person's character or reputation. So Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So name there is related to your uh, reputation, to your, uh, to your character. Um, we see, in fact, that God changes the names of some people in the Bible to distinguish either a new role or to give a more accurate description of who they, who they are. Um, one example, he does this a number of times, but Abraham uh, started out as Abram. Uh, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For, you have, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And, and Abraham means father of a multitude. Uh, and so the, the names, uh, the significance of names is a big deal in the Bible. And so when, when we're talking about God's name, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Um, we're talking about really more than just his title. We're talking about his, his character, his nature, who he is. Um, so the phrase translated take in vain uh, represents a combination of Hebrew words. Uh, the ordinary word nasa means to lift up or to carry. And the word shai uh, means emptiness, nothing, or vanity. So... In an extremely literal sense, the command could be translated, you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to worthlessness or emptiness or vanity. So this uh, command uh, on the most basic level, it means that we don't use God's name, uh, any of God's names, God, the Lord, Jesus, Christ, any of those names in a careless or irreverent way. We don't use them in a way that makes them empty or meaningless. Because his character is uh, in that name, his, his, who he is fun, foundationally. And so how we use the, his name with our words uh, on our lips is, is indicative of how we view him and how we see him and what, what kind of reverence we have for him. Uh, but in a broader sense, this command covers uh, all of life. Um, when the Bible says that God created us in his image... In, in Genesis 1.27, it means that he made us to be like him and also to represent him on earth. So it implies uh, that the whole, our whole life proclaims something about our creator, not just the specific words we say about him. Uh, and so this is why God wants us to imitate his moral character in, in our lives, because our, our expression of, of his calling and commandment is a way that reflects back on him. And so the implication then, uh, in a broad sense, is that every sin committed by us as human beings violates the third commandment because it's, uh, it's a way when we sin to basically meaning, take the meaning and the significance and the reverence out of God's name because we are his image bearers. We reflect him. And so for those of us who call ourselves Christians, it's all the more true that when we sin, we, we are... Uh, impacting in some way the reputation of Jesus in the world. So this commandment uh, against taking God's name in vain naturally suggests uh, that we consider some broader ideas related to speech and how we talk about uh, things and other people and the, and the world God has made because all these things are 
related to and reflect back, particularly people, are related back to God's character, and we're all image bearers of him. So that was a very brief overview, but uh, fundamentally the, the command, don't take the Lord's name in vain, means we don't empty his name of, of meaning. We, we don't make it vain. Uh, we don't make it meaningless. And, and so we, we revere him and we respect him in our speech. Um, but that also has broader implications, as we're going to see. So in one way that we apply this third commandment, and I think on the most basic level, on the most surface level, and the most like on the nose to what the commandment says, is we don't use God's name in any irreverent or dishonorable way. We don't misuse God's name. Uh, so any misuse of God's name should not be spoken by Christians in any circumstance. Uh, we should honor God with our words and not use his name in a flippant way or a way in which we diminish his authority. So uh, this, this, becomes, this is very easy to do as, as people, as Christians. It's become very common in our vernacular to just throw God's name out as a, as a curse word or uh, just as a, you know, a flippant uh, thing. And we, as Christians, we should guard our hearts against that as best we can. And we should, obviously, when we stumble and fall in these ways, which we will, uh, that we come back to the Lord in repentance and seek his grace. But I think on the, on the most fundamental surface level of this commandment, uh, we don't use God's name in a way that makes it flippant. I think that's, that's probably pretty, pretty clear from the commandment. Um, what about uh, some other ways that we speak, though? One is um, cursing. Now, cursing, uh, I, I'm defining in a specific way. Uh, I'm, I mean by that, words in this category would include wishes or expressions of condemnation or God's judgment on a person. So by cursing, I, I don't mean swear words in the in the sense of these four-letter words are on the naughty list. I mean, using our words in a way that brings condemnation or judgment on a person or that we're wishing someone be condemned to hell or, or some sort of flippant use of words that would crush down a, another person. And so uh, I think when we're talking about, and we're going to distinguish tonight between cursing and then other forms of, of offensive language, but uh, cursing is specifically, in my view, uh, directed at a, another human being who's made in God's image. And that, that, that's a really clear command that, that the scriptures give us not to do. The New Testament authors are super clear about this. Um, Paul writes um, in Romans twelve fourteen, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Um, so that blessing and cursing is fundamentally speech language. Um, and so similarly, James uh, talks about, uh, says, by no, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For this, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So there James talks about how our, our language can be, uh, I think er, earlier on in the, in the section, he talks about how our, our tongues can set a, a whole forest ablaze. Like they, a forest fire can start from such a small thing, a small, small spark uh, in, the right, in the right conditions can, can just burn up 
an entire forest. Um, and so our tongue is a small part of our body, but it can inflict massive harm on others. And that's, that's the point that James makes. So we, we need to not use our tongue on one hand to bless the Lord and then also curse people from the same, from the same mouth. These things ought not to be so, he says. So we should never use our language as a way to tear down people who are made in the image of God. Thirdly, uh, what about the use of obscene language? So in the first two categories, we looked at uh, speech related to how we speak about God and how we speak towards others. But what about um, language that people would say is dirty language uh, or in other words, is it unethical for us to use swear words or these, these things that are, are, you know, our language vocabulary would say, these are bad words and these are good words. Um, is that appropriate? And now he, here's what I'd say. For sure it's inappropriate if those things are being used towards someone else, to cut them down, to harm them. Yes, then absolutely it falls under the second category we looked at. But if you stub your toe in the woods, can you just express your pain with a word that maybe you wouldn't want to say around your mom or something? Like, uh, is, that, is that unethical? Well, that's a good question, and I'm glad I asked it. So here we go. Um, uh, here's my view. Unlike taking God's name in vain or cursing someone, meaning hurting, wanting to harm them through your words, I'm going to say uh, that the use of swear words, uh, whatever you wanna, however you want to define that, uh, isn't always wrong for everyone in all circumstances, okay? So again, I think it comes down to um, the, the situation, the reason, uh, what's the motive of the heart. Uh, there's a lot of questions I think that have to be answered rather than just saying, okay, this list of words are bad, don't say them. Okay, well, that's kind of a fence around a fence, I think. And so is it always wrong to use certain words uh, typical four-letter words in, in every situation. I think it depends. I think in a lot of ways, uh, these words can be seen as socially offensive, and so we should be mindful of that. Like when we don't wear deodorant and we're smelling really bad or when we're picking our nose in public or if we're drinking alcohol in front of someone who struggles with substance abuse. Like these are all things that as human beings living in a society, we need to think about how to, how to be unoffensive. And so we, we shouldn't, we try, I think most of us try to put our, you know, best face forward. We try to, you know, wear clean clothes. We try to not do something that's going to cause someone else to stumble. Um, and certain words, um, particularly the list of words that we can all think of, um, and I know you're all thinking them, uh, <laughs> the words that are on that list, those can certainly give offense uh, if said in the in the wrong context to the wrong person in the wrong way, but I, I I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's always wrong to use a, those certain words as long as they're not directed at a person to say call them that or to wish that upon them or whatever the case like that's always wrong um, that's always a sinful use of words but but if it's just generically using them. I think there is a case to be made to, to avoid them. Paul does talk about corrupting talk and crude joking. I think crude joking uh, definitely falls into a category we need to avoid where, you know, locker room talk or, or, or sexual slang or 
things like that um, can definitely, again, cause people to stumble for one thing, make them think thoughts that they shouldn't be thinking. Uh, just also offensive on a on a um, social level. And so we should definitely be mindful of that. But with everything, I think it comes down to the motivation of your heart. Um, if you're saying words that could be considered offensive in order to shock someone or offend someone, then that indicates that there's a heart problem. Uh, if you're using certain words to express frustration at a situation and not at a person, then I think you need to follow your conscience on that and trust the Holy Spirit to convict you if, if that's a situation where you're leading into sin. But um, I'll give you one, one example of when I, when I failed in this, and I, I failed in this probably many times, but one that just came to my mind this afternoon was when we first planted the church, this was right as we were getting things started. We had, um, I was working at Walmart to pay some bills. I was trying to get this church up and running. And we had a young guy, uh, 17, 18-year-old kid, leading worship for us uh, on Sundays, doing the music for us. And I went into a meeting with him and the one of the other guys who helped start the church. And I came right out of work. I was very frustrated at a situation. And I said a word I won't say here. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just expressing my, my frustration at something that was happening. But I did it in front of this kid uh, who was not mature enough to, to handle it. Um, didn't really, was kind of shocked by the fact that I said it and I was wrong to say it. I was wrong. Uh, and I apologized for saying it right in the moment. Um, but it, it really actually, it, it all kind of fell apart. He ended up quitting on us and, and was just really mad that I, that I did this. Um, and I think on one level, I showed a lack of wisdom. I don't think that I, the word I said was inherently evil in the context I said it. Um, but it really scandalized him. And so because of that, I, I was wrong. And I tried to own that to him. But uh, again, there was immaturity on his part. There was immaturity on my part. Uh, but that's just an example of how we can say things. We put our foot in our mouth. We, and then there's ripple effects. There's consequences. And we, we live with those. And, um, you know, God bless him. He's doing great things. And I don't think any of us hold ill will towards each other. But we that was a moment that, that clearly caused a rift between us, which I regret. So anyways, I share all that, probably an overshare, but that's, <laughs> that's where it's at. Um, okay, let's go down to the ninth commandment. We've got like 10 minutes to blaze through this, so I, I, we may take a little longer than 10 minutes, but I'll do my best to get us out of here at about eight. Um, this is down at the ninth commandment. And again, I'm, the only reason we're taking this out of order is because it, it falls into the same category as the third commandment, which is our, our speech. Um, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So um, the specific focus of this command is on being a false witness. So that would be somebody who gives uh, in a courtroom situation a, a false statement about something that your neighbor did. Uh, false witness uh, is born against your neighbor. So this is someone who you should know well or have accurate information about. And basically, I think the command at the, at the most fundamental level is saying, don't railroad your neighbor to, get, to, to look better for yourself or to hurt them or to harm them. Don't go into a legal situation in particular and misrepresent a situation 
as a witness against your neighbor. So on the most fundamental level, that's, that's what this is really drawing out is be truthful as it relates to the legal uh, implications of, of being a witness. But this command, like all the commands, have um, a, a more uh, broad uh, definition or a more broad application. Uh, obviously, this command is not intended to prohibit only this specific kind of false speech. It's not a, a narrow view that says, well, you, this is the only way in which this is appropriate is in, in the courtroom. I think it, all, it points to the deeper issue of lying and truth-telling in general. It comes down to how do we represent the Lord through the way that we speak. So this gets us into some interesting stuff because what is the definition of lying? How do we define it? Um, sometimes when we talk about lying, it's, it's not precise. It's, it's, the definitions are sometimes murky. Um, sometimes they're not really specific. And so I, taking this from Grudem, the most narrow sense of lying uh, is verbally affirming something that you believe to be false or more broadly, any kind of deception, uh, whether it's written or verbal, any words that you use that are meant to deceive others. And I think that's the, the way we'll understand it tonight is any deception, any way in which we try to mislead other people. So the foundation for truth-telling is uh, rooted in the character of God. God doesn't lie. Uh, Numbers 23, 13 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Proverbs 35 uh, says, every word of God proves true. Titus 1, 2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the world, the ages began. Colossians uh, 3, 9 and 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. So don't lie because we're being made to be more like Jesus. So real quickly on this broad picture of, of truth-telling and lying, um, based on the abundant testimony of Scripture about lying and the biblical testimony about the character of God, it's, it's never right to lie uh, in the sense of affirming in speech or writing something that you believe to be false or know to be false. Um, so that, I think, is the, the heart of the ninth commandment is don't, say something in writing or in verbal words that misrepresent the truth and you know when you know you're misrepresenting the truth. But how do we apply this? How do we actually see this play out in our lives? Because um, this, is, this is, gets a little bit stickier because there are many biblical examples of lying in the, in the scriptures. Um, in spite of the strong testimony of scripture against lying, a number of ethical writers have argued that there are specific narrative examples in Scripture that show that God sometimes approves of human lies that were told for good purposes, particularly to save human life, therefore overturning our conclusion that lying is always wrong. Um, and, I, and I don't know if I would say that this would completely overturn it. I think it does put it on, uh, it makes it a little bit more difficult to make an absolute statement that lying is always wrong. However, how do we understand, how should we understand this? Well, first, uh, narrative form is a form of literature, which is telling us a story. So it's 
Narrative tells us what happened. It's not always telling us how we should live. It, it's, it's like recording events of history. Uh, you can say that the founding fathers had slaves. That's historical fact. That does not mean because that happened, we also now should have slaves, right? So you can say that the characters in the Bible lied in this situation or that situation, but we, don't, we shouldn't automatically jump to, well, then that means we should lie. So there's, a, so there's a little bit of a problem with saying, well, because the Bible seems to indicate there's a, there was a positive outcome to lying, then therefore it's always fine. Um, but there are some scripture passages that should make us think. <laughs> uh, there's actually several that we're going to look at that are going to kind of make us question. Uh, one is Rahab's lie. So this was from Joshua uh, Rahab lied to, to the men of the city that she lived in, uh, and they were looking for the Hebrew spies. If you remember this story from Joshua 2. Um, this, so the Hebrew spies are going into the land. They're trying to figure out how to militarily take care of it. Uh, they get stuck in a situation where they have to hide from the soldiers in the city. They find Rahab's house. She hides them, and then she tells tells them, uh, tells the the soldiers she doesn't know where they are um, and then gives them an, an opportunity to escape. And, and now the New Testament affirms uh, that God used this woman, Rahab, to help God's people. Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith, as we call it, the, all these people who by faith did things. And verse 31 acknowledges Rahab's active role in, in working uh, God's will. James 2.25 talks about Rahab uh, in a positive way. So, but, but here's the key. Nowhere in scripture is there any verse that speaks this way uh, and contains an explicit approval of a lie, uh, even one told to protect human life. There's no verse that says you should lie in this situation. So that's why it's such an ethical dilemma. Um, it's what Rahab did, and there's, there was a positive outcome that God used, but does that mean we should then act accordingly? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, John Calvin on this tries to make some sense of it regarding her lie. He says, as to falsehood, we must admit, and though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who hold what is called a dutiful lie to be altogether excusable, do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. Therefore, although our purpose is uh, purpose to, be a, um, to assist our brothers, it can never be lawful to lie because it cannot be right, which is contrary to the nature of God and God is truth. So Calvin's point is, is that yes, Rahab lied, uh, good came of it, but we can't, we can't say that the lie was good because the lie was a sin. Even if they, so again, yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to navigate some of this, but Augustine, another uh, ancient um, Christian from the 300s, he had a similar view as Calvin. Um, I'll skip over that one if you guys want to see that in a minute you can but um just for the sake of time here second second example of lies that we'll use here is uh hebrew midwives in egypt right so the hebrew midwives were instructed to kill uh baby boys i believe it was and and um it's that way to control the population of the hebrew people so they didn't get too too big and uh potentially be a danger to the egyptians um and the Hebrew midwives lie about 
of the situation. They preserve the life lives of these babies. Um, it's it's a little complicated of a story. Perhaps uh, they didn't exactly lie. There, there might have been some wiggle room here. Maybe they just didn't show up when the births were happening. Maybe they taught some other women to, to help with the births so that they could have some, some out and, and didn't have to lie. Again, we don't, we don't exactly know, but we know that there was some deception there. So this passage is not like a clear, like, attaboy about lying, right? It's, um, it's, it's not, Augustine says, it's not because they lied, but because they were merciful to God's people. Therefore, that was rewarded to them, not in their deceit, but in their benevolence. So Augustine's view is, it's not the lie that we affirm, it's the fact that they, the midwives were merciful to these, to these women who were giving birth to Jewish babies. Um, that, so it's kind of just focusing on something different there. Um, John Frame, from his book, uh, he mentions 16 other passages in which someone misled or an enemy without incurring any condemnation and sometimes even being commended. Here's, here's a longer quote. He says, in, in these passages... Uh, there is deceit, and that deceit brings harm, but the harm comes to an enemy, not to a neighbor. It does not appear that the Bible passages listed above, and I'll give them to you on the next slide, which justify deception in certain cases all have to do with the promotion of justice and against the wicked, especially when they seek innocent life. We should recall that in the ninth commandment, the requirement to tell the truth is conditioned on a relationship that of neighbor. So that's Frame's perspective. Here's all these passages that he points out 16 different times. Uh, that's a lot of numbers and, and words. But uh, those are all the places where John Frame would say there's, there was a lie that happened. Uh, no bad consequences came of it. Sometimes good consequences came of it. Grudem, on the other hand, and this is where these two guys butt heads, they dis- he disagrees with Frame on this. Uh, he says that the passages fall into several categories but none of them contain a clear lie in the sense of a verbal affirmation of something that the speaker believed to be false that is a pr- and, that, and that being approved by God. Some of the passages speak about deceptive action, some such as military ambush, a surprise attack, or David pretending to be insane. Uh, but these deceptive actions do not seem to be approved by God in these passages. They, uh, they do seem to be approved by God, rather, but they do not fall into the category of a lie. So Grudem would say, frame is wrong because those aren't actually lies. They're, they're deceptions. Like, okay, I don't, uh, who knows? But uh, sounds like you're splitting hairs to me. But okay, uh, so here's a question. Is, is lying in order to protect life acceptable? That's one of the key ethical questions when it comes to lying and t- truth telling. Are there circumstances in which God permits us to lie to bring about a good result, such as saving a person's life. Now, that's obviously probably the most extreme example we can think of. Uh, some author, authors argue that lying to protect innocent life can be morally right. Frame says yes. Grudem says no. Uh, so they, these two guys who wrote ethics books come to different conclusions. Grudem's point is, and I didn't write it all out for you, but basically his, his conclusion is, is if you have to verbally tell a deception, it's wrong and you shouldn't do it, even if it is to the most extreme case of saving a human life. You have to trust God with, the, with doing what's right in that situation and trust him with the results. Frame says 
No, you need to lie to save someone from, from potential death. And so if you're in a life or death situation, go to John's Frame's house, not to Grudem's house. Uh, that's the moral of the story for me, okay? Uh, go, to, go to John Frame's house if you're in trouble because uh, he'll, he'll keep you safe. Now, if you're ever in the situation where you have to protect, and hopefully never will be, right? But if somebody comes to your house and they're being hunted down by the military or some government or what, like the, we always think of the, the Jewish people during the Holocaust, right? These extreme, these, these, were, these happened and it's real. And it, people actually did shelter the Jews who were being um, hunted down. And that's, that's commendable. That's a good thing in my view. Um, and I think that you, you and I have to just make our best judgment on these things. Like I, I, don't, I don't know that there is an absolute right or wrong in this, but I would lean towards, yeah, if you have to, lie to save someone's life. I, I, don't, I don't know that that's all that difficult. But Wayne Grudem would disagree, and, and that's fine. But I'm not going to his house if I, if I, need, to, <laughs> if I need to hide. Um, so one more quick thing here. Let, let's just talk about the positive side of words that are implied in this, and then we'll be done. Um, I think the implication of the positive, rather than just focusing on don't, bear false witness against your neighbor is to speak the truth in love. And that's the New Testament call on our lives from Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love, which means we should be speaking with kindness and humility and thoughtfulness and truth, truthfulness, um, that we should tell people the truth as we love them. So again, just to remind you of James uh, 3, 9 through 12, it says, with our words, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The point is, is that we, we shouldn't be double speaking. We shouldn't be on one, one side of our mouth saying God is wonderful and on the other side of our mouth tearing down those he made. Um, so as we think about our speech, as we think about honoring him with it, that's really what it comes down to is speak the truth in love. Use your best judgment on, on the things you need to do as, in regards to the swear words or the lies and when that's appropriate and when it's not. Like In 99% of the cases, lying is always wrong, but there may be possibly that one glimmer of place where it needs to happen and so again we have to walk by the spirit in those things and trust him Uh, but if we conduct our lives with the desire to build others up with our words and not tear them downward then we're we're on the right path so there you go Uh, any questions about that and then we can we can pray and head home if, if not so You guys can chat with me afterwards too. So I'll, I'll pray. Then we'll, we'll, we'll jump in uh, or head home. Father, thanks for giving us uh, the opportunity to study your word. We pray you uh, help us to apply it as you would, would lead us. And uh, we ask that you uh, guard us against misusing your name and dishonoring your, your character. And we pray that you would help us to love one another well. And that's, that's really the heart of all of this is that we love you and love each other and help each other love you more. So we pray you'd help us in those things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.